Today, we're beginning a new series called The Table. I want you to picture your childhood home. In my childhood home, one of the centers of our home was our dining room. And inside there, we had a big table. Now, most of the time, we didn't have to put the little leaf in. But every once in a while, if we were going to have company over, if we were going to have family over, we'd have to get out the thing from underneath mom and dad's bed to put in there to make the table longer. If you were to look at that table, which is still in my parents' house, you would see the indentation from me pressing too hard with a pen as I tried to do my homework when I would do it. I have memories of things that I spilled at that table, of moments where I was celebrated for the great things that happened in my life, moments where I got to share great news of things in my life, and moments that weren't as pretty, moments that I'm not as proud of, where I either had to share news that I wish I didn't have to, or I received news. Maybe that's the same for you. Tables are a place where everything changes. It's where relationships happen. It's where life happens. It's where we're reminded of provision as we eat and we celebrate. It's a place where sometimes we also gather and we mourn or we try to figure out where do we go next. But tables are integral to our lives. And the beauty of a table, too, is that it's meant to have lots of people gather around. So this morning, as we begin this series, I I want you to hear two things that are going to be important for you, that if if you check out through the rest of the series, I just want you to know this, because we're going to talk a lot about how tables and food and provision and parties are a part of Scripture. But I hope you hear these, these two things. The first thing is just this. Every single one of you have been invited to sit at the table of the God of all the universe. And it's not because of anything that you could ever do or ever earn, but it's surely because God deeply and desperately loves you. As a father who desires for all of his children, regardless of where they've been, regardless of what they've done, to sit with him and experience the goodness of him, experience the grace of him, experience the love of his. And don't think that as I'm talking that those are words that get to go past you. I'm talking to you. And you, and you, and even you, every single one of us have been invited. The other thing is just this. When we come to God's table, every need we could ever have will be provided. Every single need that we have will be provided. God will never leave us hanging. He'll never abandon us. He'll never make us starve, or thirst if we will come table. This morning, I want to talk about provision and contentment. Provision and contentment. Now, contentment is not a word that I think a lot of us like. We like the idea of contentment, but typically our idea of contentment is constantly moving. I want to ask you guys a question as we begin this morning. What's your baseline for enough. What's your baseline for enough? And I ask that in a very way, vague way on purpose. 
you're probably saying, enough what? Enough money, enough food, enough children, enough uh, TV, enough uh, square footage in a house. Whatever you thought of first is probably a place that maybe God wants to talk to you about. Whatever came to your mind first when I said, what's enough? Maybe a place to think of. What does contentment look like for you in your life? In the last series that we were in called Your Future Self, well, thank you. We we talked a little bit about how in a lot of ways our culture today is more stressed out than ever before. Part of it has to do with the fact that we have these devices that are constantly seeking out our attention. And they're constantly putting in our minds what we might need or want next. You know, it's kind of creepy more and more. Have you ever had a moment where you don't even Google search anything, you just say something out loud, and later on that evening you see an ad for it? Kind of creepy. But this world that we live in today is set up to make us feel a lot of discontent. It's set up to make us feel like there's never enough. Tonight, when you watch the Super Bowl, and hopefully, I don't know about y'all, I'm I'm rooting for the Chiefs. That's just me. Heard some O's. Okay, sorry. My bad. When you watch commercials, a lot of the commercials, what are they going to do? They're going to try to present some sort of good or service and most of them in which you do not need, but are going to want to make you feel as if you need this. What does it look like to be content? In one of Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul's letters that he wrote to a church, he wrote to the church in Philippi, and he's writing about this idea of what does it look like to be content in all Circumstances. If you don't know who Paul is, Paul has this incredible story you should read about in the New Testament in this book called Acts, where he goes from being this man actually of pretty great wealth, great family background, prestige, and he's totally against Jesus' followers, and he has this crazy conversion where his life completely changes, and he leaves his life that had some status, had some wealth, had some security, and begins to be this missionary traveling all around Uh, the known world at that time, sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. He is a man who was beaten often, imprisoned often, and survived a few shipwrecks. And this is what he says. He says, For I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in wants. And this is the secret, that I can do all things through him who gives me strength. That's the big secret. Through Jesus, I can do all things. I can experience all contentment. And if I was to put it in my own words, it's just this. Our state of contentment comes from our faith in a God who always provides. Our state of contentment, which is a choice, it's a conscious place to choose a sense of contentment, comes from placing our faith in a God who always 
provides. Because what's interesting is contentment is subjective. What one person's contentment for enough is, is different than another. In the United States, we have slowly, over generations, in just the way the world has shifted, have replaced things that at one point were a want to now become a need. Think about this for a minute. Uh, It used to be a luxury to have a television. Most of us, I'm going to guess today, probably have multiple televisions in their home. I always always think about the, the movie Back to the Future, where this guy goes back in time and he's sitting at the dinner table with his grandparents and his mom and his uncle, and he mentions the fact that he has two color screen TVs, and his uncle, who's this little boy at the time, says, What are you, rich? Today, it's, it's actually, uh, again, like I said, probably most of us probably have multiple TVs in our home. When I was growing up, I remember the Internet, uh, all it was good for was uh, finding video game cheat codes or email. It was just a way to not have to send a letter in the mail. Now, again, the world has shifted where in some ways some of these things have transformed from a want into a Need, But I guarantee you, if we were to poll the average American on what are the basic needs that you have versus a child in a third world country, what are the basic needs that I have, they'd probably be fairly different. I'm going to guess our list of what is a need to be content is much different. In fact, most of us probably would even begin to take some things and we'd begin to put these standards on it that are not needs at all. That a need is to have a brand new vehicle, to be able to go on a couple big vacations every year, to make sure that we uh, can have all of these things for our children, all of these things which can be great things, but in many ways, some of us in a race for contentment feel a humongous discontent in our lives. It can stress us out. In the Old Testament, there is this pretty amazing story in the book of Exodus. It's the second book in the Bible. And in it, God's people, over a series of time, became enslaved in Egypt. And they had went through a series of kind of hopelessness. And in a lot of ways, it felt like as if God had abandoned them. And so God raised up a man named Moses. And he used Moses to perform these signs and these wonders that oftentimes we refer to as the ten plagues. And so these people begin to see this God who is doing these signs and wonders. He's doing these amazing things. And he's come with this person saying that he is going to rescue them and take them into this promised land. And so through this series of events, eventually it culminates into this, this moment where the Pharaoh, the, the leader of the Egyptians, lets the people go. Now, while he lets them go, he has second thoughts. And this is where this amazing scene happens where Moses is leading the people, the recently enslaved Israelites, to freedom through parting the Red Sea. This miraculous event. I don't know about y'all, but if I was there and I am seeing like fish and shark above me in the side, that's something I'm never going to forget. That's something that is going to be burned in my mind. If I had that, you all better believe like I would be like 
God, I got you, whatever you want forever, like I've seen this. And so he gets them out of that, gets them through that, gets them to freedom. And God puts them in a little bit of a season of waiting before they're allowed to go into the promised land. And what begins to happen is the people begin to feel discontent. They begin to worry. They begin to say things like, wow, we got brought all the way out here just to starve. At least we were fed in Egypt. So God tells Moses, I'm going to do something miraculous and amazing. And for a period of time, every day, God would rain down manna, this bread, and and quail from the heaven. He would quite literally provide for their needs. But the stipulation was this. Only take what you need for that day. Only take what you need for that day. Anything else that was extra taken beyond what God had instructed them to would, would, would end up rotting and kind of going away. During this moment, God was teaching his people an important lesson. He was testing them. He was trying to show them what does it look like to be content. And the secret of contentness is just this. It's this understanding that God will always provide every need. He was asking them each day during this season, will you trust me? I don't know about you. I can't say that I think I would have for sure succeeded in that test. There are still moments for me, I'm surely not the only one in here, where even though I have seen God quite literally part seas in my life, how quickly I can begin to forget his faithfulness. How quickly I can begin to grumble and wonder if the God who just miraculously saved me will do it again and again. And he does. Every single time. So again, what does it look like to be content? What does it look like every day to choose to believe that God is still faithful? That he's not faithful for one moment, but he's faithful for eternity. That he's not just going to uh, miraculously take us from this one place in our lives and then just sort of be like, peace, ha-ha, got you real good. In the Gospel of Luke, we find a story of Jesus doing some provision and teaching as well. It's interesting, this story is, is actually one of the only stories that is in all four of the Gospels. Sometimes referred to as the feeding of the 5,000. If you have a Bible, you can open up to Luke chapter 9, but if not, it'll be on the screen. And I, I want to unpack this story, and I want to unpack a story, uh, a teaching that Jesus has uh, in the Gospel of Matthew. It says this, When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. And he took with them, and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. Now, the crowds were about to leave, were, were, were learn, the crowds learned about it, and they followed him. He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God, and he healed those who needed healing. 
Late in the afternoon, the twelve came to him and they said, The crowd, send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging because we are in a remote place here. He replied, You give them something to eat. They answered, We only have five loaves of bread and two fish. Unless we go and buy food for all this crowd, about 5,000 men where they were, it's not including women and children. But he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And the disciples did so. And everyone sat down and taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and he broke them. Then he gave them to the disciples to distribute to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Let's talk about this miracle for a moment. It was very normal in this time period as Jesus is kind of gaining recognition, people are recognizing just there's something different about this guy. That people would just follow him. Now what's crazy is our culture wouldn't really allow that, but in a lot of ways it would just be like if if at lunch half the people you worked with just didn't come back to work because they were hanging out listening to this guy teach. And not only that, they're not just listening to them teach like in the downtown square. We're talking about he's teaching out kind of just in the middle of the countryside, not close to anywhere where there's a lot of hustle and bustle going on. And so the disciples who just before this were instructed by Jesus to go out into the communities, the surrounding communities, to not take anything extra with them, to just go and trust God. You have all of these people who are there and they're hungry. Now what's interesting about this story, in my opinion, is I think from a logical standpoint, responsibility would say, hey, you chose to follow the rabbi out to the countryside without bringing any food. This is your fault, right? Like you... Sorry about that. It's not like there was this big promotion of like block party happening in the, in the Galilean, uh, uh, countryside, gonna be inflatables, Messiah of all the world teaching, plus we'll have fish and bread. This is just people decided to follow him and listen to him teach and let him heal. That's what's amazing about this story. Jesus did not owe them anything. And so when the disciples come, I mean, we, we kind of give the disciples a bad rap. I, I'm often glad that I wasn't one of those disciples because I'd look like an idiot because I probably would have said way stupider things than they did. But they rightly kind of say, listen, we don't got any money. Remember, you told us not to take anything with us before as we're going out and doing this. We can't afford to buy them food. It's too far to go. Like, logically, it's okay. I think we can just let them go. And yet we see the heart of Jesus. We see the heart of of the God who is the same God in the Old Testament who provided manna for the people complaining in the deserts to the people who unwisely decided to come out into the countryside with no plan of food. We see a God who provides regardless of our faithfulness. Now, can we think about that for a minute? Do you realize every single time From a business vantage point, God is losing out. Every single time he provides, even though we probably don't deserve it. 
That's pretty amazing. I mean, that's the beauty of grace, right? It's, it's this unmerited favor, this thing that we could never earn or deserve, yet is freely given to us. And so it's amazing that Jesus decides, no, 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 we're not going to send them away. Let's pray. Bring what we have. And that's all he does. He blesses it. You see, what's amazing about this story is it teaches us a, a, a few things, in my opinion. It teaches us that God can do big things with what we deem small. That God can multiply what the world would minimize. And God can take that that we have to provide for what we need. And some of us need to hear that this morning. Because sometimes we feel like what we have is so small that nothing could come of it. And yet, as we sang before uh, this morning, we serve a God who is a miracle worker. I mean, why do we get to this place where we have seen God do amazing things, and yet it's almost like we feel like there's only so much left for God to be able to provide? We're like Dorothy in the Wizard of Oz and saying, there's nothing else for me, right? You already gave out all the good gifts. We, we get to this point where we minimize the little things that God has, that He's given to us, that He wants to do exceedingly with. You know what I've noticed? Why I think uh, we do that? One, we're too focused on, on bigness and greatness. We're too focused on these big moments, that every single moment in our lives needs to be the parting of a Red Sea or feeding a 5,000. And yet most of us, if we would open our eyes... If we would sit down each day and write down some of the ways that God provided in that day, we would see that every single day God is performing miracles in our lives, He's providing in our lives, and He's taking things that seem so small and doing huge things with it. I know in my own life, far too often, I minimize the power and the ability of God. There are moments where I just think, what could he even do with this? What could he do with me and the gifting that I have? What could he do with my small amount of money that I could contribute to something? What could he do with the, with the, the few hours that I have? Because we're too focused sometimes on this big picture thing in so much of contentment, so much of following Jesus and being faithful in my opinion is just this. It's being faithful in the little things. That we fail to realize that there's this compounding factor. I think about it like parenting. This is at least what I'm hoping. I have uh, almost four-year-old and almost one-year-old. And what I'm hoping and realizing is just this. There is going to be far more small little battles that are going to be what ends up hopefully winning the war of parenting. Because, man, it feels like a war sometimes. That there's not always going to be just these big moments where I get to have this, you know, oh, here's this moment where I get to have this conversation with my sons where they, you know, finally get everything. I'm hoping those are those moments, but I think it's going to be far more of the consistently just showing up and trying to be faithful with my presence, with my words, with my consistency. That I'm probably not going to have that moment where my son is drowning and I get to swim out there and save him and this is this big movie moment. 
But the question becomes in our own lives, what does it look like to just be faithful every single day? What does it look like to be a good steward of our time, our talent, and our treasure? You see, most of us want God to provide in in amazing ways. We want Him to do that. We want Him to take our small two, uh, uh, you know, small fish and loaves and, and just do this um, amazing thing. And He can and He will. But for some of us, can I be honest? We have to get to the point where we're willing to just give that small bit. And now. What's crazy to me is when you think about this story, think about this. It seems pretty small, right? Especially when we think about how it feeds, you know, a crowd of 5,000 men. If you multiply that with women and children, we're talking probably a crowd of over 10,000. These other uh, gospels tell us that this is the story of this is the lunch that was packed for a little boy. What I love about this story is just this. What did the little boy give? Everything he had. Everything he had. When we think about it for the little boy's perspective, he sacrificed greatly. He wasn't giving something small. He was giving something big. But for some of us, we want to experience God's miracle of multiplication. But we don't want to invest anything in. God, I want you to change my life, but by the way, I'm not going to actually give you my whole heart. God, I want you to provide in all of these different ways. God, have your way with me, but stay out of my bank account. Lord, make my marriage centered on you, but we're not going to pray together. Form me more in your image, but I don't want to serve in any way. That's my version of if we were singing honestly sometimes. Thank you. But it's kind of true, isn't it? You know, part of growing in our relationship with Christ, in my opinion, is is allowing God to get into the deep, dark places of our hearts where we still won't let go. For some of us, it's our time. Some of it's our talent, and some of it is our treasure. You know, Jesus said, where, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And we talk about here at South Creek often about generosity and how generosity is this holistic thing. It starts really with our heart, but it's our time, our talent, and our treasure. And that there's not one that's more important than other, but every single one of them is sort of like this, this posture of this. Generosity is living with our hands wide open. It's sitting at the table and recognizing that the food that has been provided has been provided by the Father. This isn't like a potluck that we get to come to where we only eat what our food is and everyone else's. No, we we live open-handedly. And we recognize that when we don't live generously, we don't live open-handedly, we're having clenched fists. And that one of the biggest things that we fail to recognize is just this. When we live a life that is not generous... When our hands are closed, we can't receive anything. Friends, I know in my own life, there have been moments in my life where I have lived like this. And it pains my heart. And it makes me wonder, what are the things that God wanted me to receive 
if I would have just opened my hand. If I wouldn't have allowed fear to make me worry about whether or not God was going to provide. I've told this story before, but it's always worth telling. Before I moved to this church and took this job, I was visiting my then uh, girlfriend, now wife, uh, as she was working for this ministry in Cincinnati. Uh, she was kind of traveling around the country, uh, but she was in Cincinnati. And I was driving through an area that best could be described as the hood uh, when I went down a hill and my axle broke as I went down this hill. Which, like, think about it. When you're already kind of in a sketchy place, I kind of ducked because I thought, was that a gunshot? I don't know what it was. The day before Mother's Day, I could only find one place open to fix my car. My entire pathetic savings account that I had completely wiped out. And I remember getting to a place where all of my all my auto payments, because you know, like any good millennial, I have all my you know billing and my tithe and everything set on auto pay, and it's all going to hit on like one day. And I know, like, this is D-Day, this is bad, but I'm also like, I'm a man, I'm not going to ask my parents for help, come on. So I remember just praying, and I had this sense of, God, I don't know what's going to happen, but I, I'm, I'm just going to trust you. And I remember getting the mail at church that day, and I remember getting a check from First Church of God in Kokomo. And I had forgotten that as I had came down to interview for the job of associate pastor here, that I was still waiting on a mileage check for coming to visit. And would you believe that that check was more than what I needed to make sure that my account wasn't going to go negative? I've oftentimes wondered what would have happened if I chose to figure out some sort of way where I asked someone else for help, where I where I, I tried to, to cancel some sort of bill or call my student loan provider or something like that. To me, at least for me, I would have missed out on the blessing of trusting God and seeing him come. Some of us want to grow in our faith, but the issue becomes this. We're not willing to take the steps to actually see if he catches us like a trust fall. You can't really know that you're going to be caught unless you put yourself in a situation to fall. Now hear me on this, especially when it comes to like finances. I'm not asking you to be foolish. I'm imploring you to be faithful. There's a huge difference. There's tons of wisdom in scripture about what it means to be um, a good steward. But part of that comes from this place of sacrifice, and faithfulness. Now, in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is teaching in this larger teaching called the Sermon on the Mount, and he's teaching about worry. It was so interesting. Last night, uh, we we have the you know little children's uh, Bible that every kid gets when they do a parent-child dedication here. It's the, it's the Jesus Bible. Here's the thing. If you don't like to read the Bible, may I tell you, you should just get this version because it's wonderful. Puts it in great terms, um, but it was this story, and it was really beautiful to talk with my uh, my son Gideon last night about this. But this is this is what this what Jesus taught. He said, "Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, 
what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear, is not life more than food and the body more than clothes. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet their heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? By the way, science would actually say it takes away. And why do you worry about your clothes? See how the the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire... Will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all of these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. This is the important thing. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all of these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of own. I love the imagery of the simplisticness that even a child could understand. In the children's Bible verse, uh, Bible book that I was reading last night, it said, Have you ever seen a bird go to the grocery store and come away with a bunch of bags? No. Or have you ever seen a flower put on a dress? No. Because God provides for them. And if we think about this, we are the only thing in all of God's creation created in His image. We are the most important thing. Now, pet people don't at me. I'm I'm not going to get into whether dogs and cats go to heaven, although cats definitely probably don't. Um, I hope... Sorry, guys, i got allergies. But recognize this, that in the org chart of value in God's book, you, his children, people created in his image, are the number one thing. God cares about you far more than you even care about yourself. That's a lot. Some of us care about ourselves a lot. But he takes care of us. You know, Jesus even pokes the question that's worth poking is just this. If you want to do a gauge of where your faith is at, do you believe that? Do you believe he'll provide? Or do we constantly worry, constantly try to control everything? You know, the interesting thing about this is just this. The only way for you to truly be free is to relinquish control to God. It's this weird juxtaposition where, in some ways, to experience control in your life, control in the sense of stability, you have to let go of control. Sort of like when my four-year-old wants to try to pour something into a cup. He really wants it to make it in there. He's got to let Dad do it, even though that's hard. Stop worrying. That's easier said than done. But stop. 
Trust the God who got you through the big thing and the little thing and the other big thing and the other little thing and the other little thing and the other little thing. God's track record is pretty good. So let it go. Jesus teaches probably my favorite kind of thought process that I've just, you've probably tired of me talking about it throughout the last couple of years, but this idea of abiding or remaining. That if, that if we want to feel whole, if we want to know what it looks like to really be connected to God, is that we need to abide like we are. Uh, he is, Jesus is divine. We're the branches. Just be completely connected to him. And I tell you this, if you're worried about contentment, if you're worried about whether or not God will provide, let me just make this promise to you, that abiding will lead to abundance. Abiding will lead to abundance if you want abundance in your life and i'm not talking about like you get all the money in the world and you get all of these things if you want to feel uh just taken care of provided for if you want to experience life and life to the fullest it begins with abiding randy alcorn is a pastor and author who um has some really interesting stuff a, a great book if you're interested in knowing more about kind of financial stewardship in a christian manner There's a book called The Treasure Principle, which is a really great short read. But he says this. He says, Abundance isn't God's provision for me to live in luxury. It's his provision for me to help others live. God entrusted me with his money not to build my kingdom on earth, but to build his kingdom in heaven. He also said this. And these words have have kind of haunted me and have made me have to re-look at my life through the years. Is just this. God prospers me not to raise my standard of living, but to raise my standard of giving. Now, prosper is a word that gets hijacked because maybe you've heard of something called prosperity gospel. And prosperity gospel is all about this idea of uh, if you give and you give and you give, God will give you back even more so. It's this idea of if you make a uh, $1 investment, I'll give you back 100 and if we read the life and the teaching of Jesus and his disciples, let me just tell you, if you watch someone on TV, if you read some book and you bought into that, I'm just going to let you know publicly that is not part of the teaching of Jesus Christ. That is not. It would be great news if it was true, but it's not. But do I believe that God wants us to prosper? Do I think he wants us to experience joy and happiness, contentment? 100%. And so I do believe it's a worthy question in our hearts and our minds to ask ourselves is, 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 do we ever get to a place of contentment? Another pastor friend of mine said once he heard someone challenge him this. What does it look like every year or every five years to just simply ask the question, am I more generous today than I was last year, five years ago or a decade ago? And we're not talking about generosity just in the manner of, do I give more today than I gave 20 years ago? See, generosity is, is, is about sacrifice. It's not always just about an amount. But I can promise you this, my friends. Contentment will only come from Christ. There's a reason why people can 
get the job they've always wanted or, 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 or get into a new relationship with the person that they thought would be perfect. They can get to the place where uh, their children are finally out of the house or they finally get children after wanting children or they get uh, the promotion or the boss and all of those things. And yet most of us recognize at some point the things that we think will make us happy, will make us content, even good things at the end of the day, can't truly satisfy. Only Christ in your life will truly satisfy you and make you whole. We close out the message this morning. I want to give a couple challenges to you, wherever you are at. The first one is just this. And if you haven't fully surrendered your heart to Christ, I implore you to know, that God has saved a seat at the table for you. And He welcomes you regardless of where you've been, regardless of what you've done. His hope, His joy, is just that you would come home. That you would experience peace that transcends all understanding. That you would experience a wholeness, a contentness that can only come sitting at His table. And while He loves you exactly where you are, He loves you far too much to leave you. The second thing is just this. Doing an assessment of your life for a moment and just asking the simple question, is my life reflecting that of a God who is generous? Have I, have I taken a step yet to trust Him by saying, Uh, Maybe it truly is just starting wherever you are and saying, God, I am going to trust you by sacrificially giving. I'm going to trust you by uh, giving some of my time. I'm going to trust you by saying I'm going to give up this activity I like so I can serve in this capacity. I guarantee you that if you humbly and faithfully bring whatever you have to even what might seem insignificant. I know for a fact God will multiply it. God will use it. God will never leave you. He will never abandon you. For some of us, we need to begin to exercise our faith muscle by practicing faithfulness. Start where you are and allow God to show up. Allow God to reorient the priorities of your life. Allow him to reorganize what your budget looks like and your calendar looks like and what relationships look like. And may you experience peace and wholeness. Would you guys stand as we're going to pray? And we're going to sing one last song. Let's pray. God, I thank you, God, for the things that I forget to tell you thank you for. God, even for the fact that this morning I woke up. God, there's breath in my lungs. There's people who care about me. 
I'm in a place where I can worship freely. I had food. I had coffee. And God, I know that no matter what is thrown my way, you're a God who is with me, who's for me. And I don't have to fear, and I don't have to worry. That my job is just to trust you and to be faithful. And so God, this morning we come to you like the little boy in the countryside. God, with with our loaves of bread and our fish, however many that is. For some of us, it can seem like it's so significant in number, and some of us, it can feel like it is the smallest number and it doesn't even matter. God, wherever wherever we are at, God, would we just humbly come to you this morning and lay it before you? God, would you teach us to trust you like the Israelites every morning waking up to find our manna? God, would you try, would, would we, would you just teach us to learn to be content? God, would our views of what it means to be content, would it not be shaped by the people around us or the world around us or the culture around us? But God, would it be shaped by what we find through the teachings of your son Jesus in scripture? God, would your Holy Spirit just invade our entire body? our entire mind. And God, would you teach us to have the mindset of a child who trusts their Heavenly Father to give good gifts and to provide every need that we could ever have. God, this morning as we sing, we proclaim your goodness, we proclaim your faithfulness. But God, in this moment, if there's something you want to say to us, if there's a challenge you have for us, God, your servants are listening. Please speak. God, most of all, we just thank you so much for your son, Jesus. In his name I pray. Amen.